Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And last year was the first time most of us heard the name Hakim Al-Arabi. A refugee from Bahrain on a protection visa in Australia, Hakim was on the playing list of the Pascovale Football Club. He just got married and was preparing for his future in Melbourne. But everything changed when he headed to Thailand for his honeymoon. He was arrested there and put in prison because the Bahrain government wanted to extradite him. What followed was a massive international effort to save Hakim and return him to Australia. Former Socceroo and SBS broadcaster Craig Foster spearheaded this campaign that had to challenge the power of two monarchies and FIFA, football's governing body, in order to bring Hakim home. He's written a book about it. It's called Fighting for Hakim and uh, congrats on getting that book together, Craig, and um, on what is pretty much a masterclass on building a global movement. It's a rollicking read. Um, I'm interested, um, when was the first time you heard the name Hakim Al-Arabi? Um, I had, I think, kind of obliquely heard a few years before because he, you know, he'd made some statements and so on, but didn't really know much about his story. And then he got himself in trouble. And I think a bunch of people reached out to me, but after the campaign, you know, I kind of, I think we all were so tired, I never really looked back. But I'm sure I, I, I received a bunch of messages. I know I saw on social media uh, and the PFA, our Players Union, who played a really critical role, they also reached out to me. I think I was probably the obvious port of call, really, being a refugee ambassador for Amnesty and, and you know, an ex-player for the country. And so you kind of, it stepped up very quickly in terms of the campaign to free Hakeem and you led a very prominent role. Talk us through, I guess, that initial stage of hearing about Hakeem and, and the difficult situation he'd found himself in and the campaign yeah. that sort of developed and, and that you played a very prominent role in. Yeah, look, I mean, one of the reasons for writing the book is that, well, guys, oh, having it written because uh, Alex Engel from Milan was a former amnesty uh, activist and campaigner who actually wrote the book. Um, and uh, she uh, she played a big role in in getting to Bangkok, and uh, you know, on behalf of Amnesty, one of the one of the major organisations who were involved. Um, one of the key things about it to write it was to thank everyone, to thank Australia, firstly, uh, but also to give recognition to all these incredible people who are involved. Because when it and this is an answer to your question, but when it was finished, the first thing I kept saying was, look, there's been amazing people involved here. I was just very very proud of all of them and what they'd have achieved. And whilst I was the visible one, I couldn't have done, I certainly couldn't have done that, and I probably could have done virtually nothing without all of them. They're incredible, from organisations, lawyers, writing letters, advocating, put pressure, putting pressure on all of these global bodies. So it was, uh, it was a fabulous experience to be able to work with all of them. And then I guess that's one of the secrets, just working with wonderful people who have good values. And all of them were prepared to take risk they were all prepared to say, look, you know what, in my job, this is, this is stepping a little bit further than what the institution's like. It's going a little bit further than what people feel comfortable with. And in the end, we had to really severely challenge a lot of organisations, including governments and FIFA. And there is blowback from that. But, but, you know, I respect the fact that they were all prepared to do it. They knew he was in urgent, imminent danger. And everyone basically pulled out all stops and just said, we need to get this kid out. 
And I suppose, uh, as you're pointing out, it is courageous for people to get involved in somebody else's life and difficulties as you all did. And I suppose, you know, people can sit back on the couch and choose not to do it. What what made you step step up and get involved? Yeah, Um, yeah, what you say is right. Um, And that's also a reason for having the book written, is to acknowledge how important it is that we all take action. So, you know, I recently did a TEDx talk from Macquarie where it was, was talked called uh, People Power. And I talked about the value, the power that was in the 150,000 plus signatures. You know, when I went to FIFA, I was able to say to them that Australia was behind me. And that was incredibly important. So even if people just acknowledged or, or send a retweet or a like, all of those things are recorded and allows people like me to be able to say to major organisations who are, who are unwilling to move, we have this. We have this amount of people in Australia. We have this amount of people around the world. So it's really important that people, if they feel strongly about something, that, that all of us step up. It's not easy, and, and I don't say that it was easy for me. Um, there was risk, and I was worried, and I had to make a decision. So it's not like, you know, I'm not Superman. Um, I needed a huge coalition around me. I needed support throughout, and... I think in the end, though, because the kid's life was in danger, he's a wonderful young man, and that's the other reason for having the book written, is to acknowledge the bravery of Hakeem Al-Arabi. Uh, you know, what he, did, he got into trouble because he's a very brave young man who stood up for freedom and democracy, and that's, you know, it's his bravery that inspired us to say, well, if this young kid who plays our game of football, if he's capable of doing that, then how is it that I'm going to sit on SBS do multiple World Cups and have a wonderful life, go home and have dinner with my children at night, when this kid is locked up in a Bangkok prison, it simply can't happen. He's brave, we need to be brave, and in the end, uh, you know, there were almost several million people who took action of some form or another, and we reached over 30 million in 81 countries around the world in which it trended. In the end, people power shifted two monarchies, uh, several governments, and basically beat Bahrain, and they hadn't been beaten in this way before. And, I mean, we've seen, in, not just in this instance, but in um, instances throughout Australia's and the world's history, how sport can be an incredible force for positive change. And often it comes from the grassroots and people coming together and, you know, pushing whether it's for the I mean, Australian uh, rugby team's boycott um, of the South African tour or, you know, multiple other examples of where sport has kind of been a vehicle for broader kind of social justice movements and so on. In this case, though, I mean, it took a while for you to convince, um, you know, people who are in positions of power and particularly FIFA, the governing body, mm-hmm. to kind of get involved and see that this was a really pressing issue that should be dealt with. Why was there a bit of a reluctance initially from some to advocate on behalf of Hakeem? Yeah, good question. The, the reason is simple and it's common, and that is that politics and money and influence will almost always trump the rights of an individual, particularly one without a voice who's unknown and can easily be traded away. So the game of football um, has recently had issues. You've seen what's happened in Iran. Many people would know that Iranian women um, are seeking equality under the FIFA statutes. They want to enter stadiums and watch the, the, the male games, and the government hasn't allowed it. Even though FIFA statutes say, if you're a member of our game, you must allow them in. 
But FIFA will trade that away for different relationships and to maintain the political, um, you know, the political capital. And it takes people like all of us, all of the Australians who are involved, to step up and, and essentially be in their face and say, we're not going to take that. We're not going to accept that. In our view, this kid was more important than your relationship with Bahrain. The, the rights of this young man were more important than all of your commercial arrangements. And you uh, are obligated to fight for him today, and we're not going to leave this office, and we're not going to stop until you do so. And when that happens, and when you have the support of enough people, and you have really great activists and, and, and you know, articulate and um, um, uh, quite brilliant people involved that I had behind me, then there's nowhere for them to go. And that's what people need to understand, is that when it comes to these issues, power structures only persist and only exist um, with our acquiescence. And Australia said, FIFA has statutes, and we're not going to let you avoid them. And there was no way in the world that they were going to get away from that. We forced them to act. We forced them to act according to their obligations. In the end, though, I must say, whilst the FIFA meeting is, was a really interesting one, I talk about it uh, a lot in the book, uh, because it's important for, for sport governance, it's important for people in football and sport around the world to understand how FIFA did and didn't act. You know, they are the biggest sporting organisation globally. So again, those themes in the book, I, I think, are important, is why it's been written. Um, but in the end, it was the Australian government who actually made the decisive moves and who were able to um, use the power of the campaign um, on a diplomatic level to be able to manage, navigate, negotiate uh, a way out in those final few intense, incredibly emotional days that is in the end of the book. Should remind listeners, we're speaking with Craig Foster all about his book Fighting for Hakeem and the incredible campaign um, he led along with uh, many other people to bring uh, Hakeem al-Arabi back to Australia having been detained in Thailand and I'm interested in, in your strategy and, and your lobbying of the federal government whilst of course being employed by SPS as a, a sports analyst and, and commentator and you do in the book have positive things to say about Maurice Payne and Scott Morrison's eventual work yeah. in helping to bring Hakeem home, but you also have been, you know, openly critical elsewhere of um, the government's asylum seeker policies, for example. Throughout this campaign to bring Hakeem home, you stayed relatively focused on, I guess, what was a very particular issue with um, ensuring yeah. his safety. Can you talk us through that strategy and, and, and I guess how you yeah. negotiated your role as somebody leading yeah. this campaign while being a government, um, yeah. you're part of the government funded yeah. broadcaster? Yeah, good question. So the, it's reasonably uh, straightforward. The, the issue around Hakeem's rights are about human rights. So they weren't about policy. They were about internationally recognised human rights instruments, which Australia has uh, acceded to, uh, as had Thailand of some of them. So in my view, as, um, uh, as I recently... Um, uh, I just finished my law degree, actually, last week. <laughs> and so throughout the campaign, you know, I had studied it quite deeply as well and, and understood it. Uh, you know, human rights are actually apolitical. And so when I'm talking about asylum seekers, I'm talking about the right to seek asylum. I'm talking about their right under international law. And the fact that, you know, different governments have various policies and... All of the political parties can argue that ad infinitum. In my view, this is about an apolitical space. That's why sport, I think, must be comfortable to be in this space because what we're saying is everyone has human rights which are immutable and which are universal. 
That's what this is about, and it's also about the right of all refugees, whether in Australia uh, or asylum seekers offshore, whether in offshore detention or otherwise. They have rights, and those rights under international law should be upheld. And we only have a short time with you, Craig, but I wonder if we look... Uh, at what might come in the future and for, and you say this a few times in the book, the next Hakim because this yeah. may happen to someone else, you know, obviously not exactly the same circumstances, but uh, what do you hope will happen, maybe not with regards to our particular government, but with FIFA and, and uh, world sporting mm. bodies? Do you think there are charters of human rights that are in place uh, and aren't always being implemented fully mm will start to be? Do you have hope in that or, or, or where are you sitting right now? Uh, I am a pragmatist. Um, I'm an optimist, but when it comes to football and when it comes to sport governments and probably politics, I'm also a pragmatist. And that is that um, people often need to be pressured. They often need uh, campaigns. They often need uh, enough voices to push them and force them and, in fact, give them the leverage, the political leverage, to be able to act. So just last week, FIFA have the most robust human rights policy in the world. They weren't going to implement it for Hakeem. That's a fact. They also, only last week, gave a new uh, tournament, a, re a revised version of the Club World Cup, which is a hugely important uh, um, and financially beneficial a remake of uh, this Club World Cup. Uh, to China, and in so doing, they completely avoided their statutory obligation to do a human rights audit of China as a country prior to awarding any major tournament. So therefore, once again, we see that if they're able to, if they're allowed to, and if people don't use their voice and speak up, then they will avoid these things because it holds them accountable to fundamental universal standards that all of us have a right to, to be afforded. So activism and people in football or outside in society who are able to say, we're all human beings, ultimately that's what the campaign was about. And that's what my speaking about Manus, Nauru, or anyone else about these asylum seekers, we're all the same. We're human beings, we have the same rights, we should have the same opportunities, that's where I'm an optimist. I think that all of us should be capable of bringing up our families, of being safe, of having uh, opportunities to, to dream and hope and having ambitions and being able to fulfil them. But ultimately, we all have just basic human rights and we should, should recognise that, like Hakeem was a young Muslim male, no-one in that campaign cared what his religion was, where he was from, or how old he was, or whether he was male or female, or any other factor. And, if you a person in trouble, we went to help him, and that's what we should do every day. And just finally, Craig, you got to know Hakeem in the very sort of heady times of this campaign, visiting him in prison and so on. What's the nature of your relationship with him today? Oh, we're very close. He's just a lovely... He's a lovely young man. Um, he's... You know, it's, he's been through a very difficult time. So uh, many of us, and particularly me, try to provide every support that we can for him, uh, whether that's advice or otherwise. He's rebuilding his life. That's not easy after what he's been through. I haven't been through it. I can't understand it. I haven't experienced it. All I can keep saying to him is, please reach out when you need help. Please re reach out and let me know what's happening so that I can provide support for you and around you and your family. But it's, you know, it's difficult. Once people come through these things, the lasting damage from these types of experiences are vast. Uh, and so, you know, it's going to take some time, I think, for 
young man like Hakeem to get where he wants to be. He still dreams of being a footballer, and I hope that one day we can see him playing in the green and gold for Australia. Well, thank you for spending so much time with us this morning, and uh, we'll let people know about the Australian story that's happening tonight as well. Um, Fighting for Hakeem is the the book that uh, Craig Foster's name is on. Uh, He wrote it together with Alex Engel Mullon as well. And um, yeah, all the best, and we look forward to seeing what you do next, uh, Craig. Yeah. Okay. Great. Lovely to talk to you guys. Thanks, uh, Craig Foster there, and uh, Fighting for Hakeem is the book. Uh, You can catch uh, Australian Story tonight as well if you're interested in finding out more about the background to the um, Save Hakeem campaign. Uh, It's really quite a fascinating account, and and I certainly have learnt a lot about particularly the world governing bodies around sport. The environmental film festival is not just about raising awareness of environmental issues and injustice, it's also a celebration of the natural world and this morning director Grant Baldwin joins us. He's made a stunning film about the mountains of Canada's British Columbia and those who relish in the mountain life. It's called This Mountain Life and he's come to Melbourne for the screening at Cinema Nova tomorrow night as part of the environmental film festival and it's great that you've been able to come into Triple R. Welcome. Thanks for having me in. And uh, you've made a film about a whole range of people who live for the mountains. Is this? Could you have featured yourself in this documentary? Do you also live for the mountains? I, I don't think I'm as extreme as everyone in the film. I think these people I, I featured, the, the thing they have in common is, even though they're there for different reasons, art or sport, um, they thrive in a place most people would find inhospitable. And so I really like that common thread where they're really uncomfortable in a place like a city but when they're in the mountains, that's where they come alive. And these are the type of people you don't usually see in mountain movies, so I tried to, to bring them to the forefront. And, and tell us about the environment. I mean, this is British Columbia in Canada. 75% um, of that area is mountains. How would you describe the terrain for those who haven't been there or, or aren't aware of it? Well, that's actually interesting, is that most people that even live in BC haven't seen these mountains because um, it's so remote uh, that, you know, we mostly live down in the by the border and then it's very sparse sparsely populated further north and the mother and daughter that traverse the entire coast range in the film traveled for days through places where no humans probably been before Mm. and that's a difficult thing to say this day and age yeah for sure well let's um talk about some of the characters in the film so martina and tanya mother and daughter duo who head off on an incredible trek how did you come across their story I was interviewing um, one of the other characters that was the deepest um, avalanche burial survivor in Canadian history, and he told me about his friend that was, and uh, her mum, who was about to plan this trip, and I couldn't believe that they were going to do it. It's only been done once before. It's equivalent of going from Melbourne to Brisbane and back, but through the coastal mountains of British Columbia on skis. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, so it's crazy. Yeah, and so you I mean, we have footage of them in the film. So you must have what joined them at some points or other during yeah. during the trip. Tell us how that worked because on one hand, they're alone really yeah. in this incredibly challenging landscape, very beautiful landscape as well, but very challenging in winter. And then what, did you jump off a helicopter to join them? Well, sort of. Okay, so there's no way I could have done the trip with them because I would have quit probably in the first 3 weeks. But, I mean, I do ski tour, and I could keep up to a certain amount. So we did three three se- se- separate shoots with them. And then they would film things on their GoPros and cell phones to sort of fill in the blanks for us. But they, you know, by the end of the six months in the mountains, they were so 
uh, physically fit and machined that they actually helped us with our camera gear through the challenging stuff at the end in Alaska. Because <laughs> um, I, I, I was like, you know, I just had to keep focusing on filming, and I and and it was just so physically demanding that they came back and like helped haul my snowboard up over some of the the ridges and stuff so. <laughs> that's hilarious that was not in the film no because we we wanted to it to feel like that you're just with them and that like, we actually didn't even camp beside them we stayed about 40 meters away when we set up so we wouldn't impede on on visually and and uh on their trip we wanted to just kind of like approach it as if they were a polar bear that we're following in a, in a David Attenborough film. And it's one thing to carry, you know, all your clothing, your um, food on your back. I mean, they did have food drops along the way, of course, yeah. but and shovels and, and a blow-up boat as well. But you also had to deal with camera equipment in your sort of trips there. Mm-hmm. How difficult was it to film in that environment and to kind of move equipment around? Well, we, we had a, a system where I would be responsible for the camera gear and my own personal glacier like um, rope and um, harness and then I had a helper that came that was responsible for the food and the tent and so they their job was just to set up camp and melt snow for water so we were comfortable to keep going so I could just continue filming without being distracted and that worked out really well and I would always go with someone who's slightly stronger than me because I'm not super confident with ropes. I'm not super confident with glacier tra- glacier travel. Um, we're like right up to the last minute before we go in. We'd be practicing setting up uh, crevasse rescue rope systems and stuff. <laughs> Thank God we didn't have to go there. But. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean you mentioned mentioned glaciers there, and I mean the Environmental Film Festival. You know we've we've been featuring films from it for for many years on on this station on this program, and often they're about you know raising awareness of environmental issues and the like. And this film uh, is really like a love letter i suppose to the mountains and those who love it but at the same time there is mention in there about Mm -hmm. receding glaciers so was there information that the mother-daughter team could bring back to people that don't know what's happening in those mountains that could inform us about about them they weren't motivated to to do for them the trip was just about this sort of personal escape um but they did photograph a lot and they do talk about that when they do their own presentations um, because there was a team that did it in 2001, a team of four, and they're the first duo to ever do it, so 20 years later. And so they were used to using the route maps from the previous team, but they actually had to completely change the route because often they would try to ascend a glacier that was now gone. It was just a lake. So um, just in 20 years, they, they were able to like kind of photograph the differences there on that route. The footage in this film is is absolutely stunning and would um, would you know be something that would really shine through on the big screen. We saw it on our, our small screens and our laptops. But how do you go about um, kind of capturing footage in such a remote area? I'm imagining these days with drones and so on, it's a little bit easier than perhaps it was before. Yeah, absolutely. The drone technology helped a lot, but we we still wanted to look as uh, pleasing on the big screen as possible so mm-hmm. we did bring a bigger drone with us for a few of the shoots and we built a toboggan that was i don't know if you guys know what a crazy carpet is it's like <laughs> it's a sheet of plastic that kids ride down in the park when it snows and we we'd use ropes and wrap that around the drone case and then we'd have bungee cords that we'd tow it behind us on skis and so we could launch this thing 
whenever we get to a, an amazing spot. But honestly, the weather and um, the wind and everything wasn't very cooperative. So when we got those shots, we were really excited. But for most most of the time, we're just hauling this stupid box around. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, you, you mentioned that there was links and it's sort of like little vignettes, wasn't it, between, you know, mm-hmm. the people that you're following at different points um, in the film. And I suppose one of the comments that stood out to me was from the mother-daughter team and, and, and the mother said that, um, you know, something like you can't have joy without struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wondered if that was part of wanting to make this film as well to to show the contrast between the mountain life and and our um, various city lifestyles that, that most of the people Absolutely. watching the film are probably yeah. enjoying. I think I was just trying to, uh, through all these characters, show how I feel when I'm in the mountains. Um, but, of course, I'm not interesting enough to film uh, what I do. So these people interface in such an extreme way, whether it's with beauty, with, with um, art, or the nuns in the film that are there for spiritual reasons. And... I just wanted to kind of show these extremes, but it really is, like you said earlier, you kind of hit on the head with the fact that it's just a love letter to the mountains. And so there was a link there between, um, I guess, the story we're largely following throughout the film, the kind of mother-daughter incredible trek through the mountains um, and and a link with the person who almost died in an avalanche, which is an incredible story as well. How did you come across the other people who were part of this film? You know, all the other films I've worked on have just been based on a lot ton of research, internet, books, and this film is so different. It was just word of mouth in the mountain community. Does anyone know anyone that's like an old miner that lives in the mountains? And my friend would be like, I know a guy that has horses in the mountains with his wife and they live off the grid and I'll see if I can track down the P.O. box and then we'd like write a letter and then we get a hand-drawn map back of how to find these people and we'd just follow up and go film. It, it's just really neat how it just was through word of mouth that everyone sort of came together in this. How did you find a snow artist, someone who makes these incredible kind of images by walking around in the snow? A friend, a friend had, had brought me to, uh, him to my attention. His name Simon Beck. He's actually from England, but he was in North America at the time. And we brought him up to uh, around Whistler area to do one of his pieces. And I just really liked the idea of confusing the audience in the beginning of the film by what is this guy doing wandering around the snow? And then you just reveal this amazing, symmetrically perfect piece. And when he was making it, I actually thought he completely messed it up. And I'm like, this looks terrible from the ground. It's just like a bunch of wiggly lines everywhere. And then when I pulled back with the drone, when he had finished about 12 hours later, I saw this perfectly symmetrical uh, snowflake and I'm like wow okay we got the opening (laughs) yeah I mean it was a spectacular way to open a film because it was intriguing as you say but it's art that can only be seen Mm -hmm. from above so it's really disappears right away and you wouldn't want it to snow while you're doing it for 12 hours either so he's got to pick the conditions right but this idea that there's art that only makes sense if you see it from above is it has to be photographed pretty much. That's it. That's All it. The, it's for he the birds. relies on, and, and drone technology has kind of been good for him because he's been able to capture it. But he also works in sand. And his art is all about the, the idea that it's going to disappear in the next, you know, day or so. And of course, you know, the tide comes in and, and destroys his work right after. But, it, you know, it, it, we were very lucky that we actually even got that because it stormed for two days after um, we got that shot and we were stuck on that glacier for two days. <laughs> And he just kept pacing around doing shapes while we were waiting to get out of there. <laughs> so you met some real characters. Oh, absolutely. But that's what I like about documentary is that you sort of, because there's a trust 
with your subject and then you sort of you just become friends with everyone and we keep in touch with everyone in the film and yeah I feel and in some ways even though you know we just don't have mountains like BC in Australia but we definitely have people living remote and Mm -hmm. so in some ways this idea of people really living incredibly different lives within the same state or the same country uh, that you otherwise would never hear about felt a little bit familiar Mm -hmm. but at the same time then also going there and speaking to them and those stories being brought to everybody else is is there's something really special about doing that it feels somehow like a privilege i think it's i I mean this people live in these like you say amazing lives and no one understands how they do it or or that they're even there and i think in a way that they deserve it's like an award or something they deserve to be recognized (laughs) for the work they've done living off the grid 50 years i mean that's that's pretty crazy and only walking no road to their house no there is a road for in the summer you can get there in the summer in the winter uh, you can't but um yeah, it's it's amazing what they've built, and it's actually quite a comfortable existence for that couple now. Over the years, they've built their systems up and built their own hydro system, and um, they actually came to one of the screenings, so they left, and they came down to Whistler to watch one of the, the theatrical screenings, and uh, it was great to have them there. Yeah, did, did they meet any of the other kind of participants in the film, characters in the film? Uh, they didn't because they we tried to bring them to the premiere and they just did not want to go to Toronto. There's no way they're getting on a plane. Um. <laughs> if, you, if you live in that place, why would you? <laughs> yeah, so um, so it, they didn't get to meet anyone else, but they, they're they're thrilled. They they you know they keep telling writing us letters and saying that they they tell their friends about the film and they're quite quite happy to to have been in it. You know, trying to get that trust early on can be difficult when you're working on a documentary, but it always seems in hindsight at the end they're really happy to have been in it. I just wish that in the research stage that people are more like buying in. <laughs> yeah, well, they don't, you need to give them your credentials, of which yeah. you've made Grant Baldwin, which is screening as part of the Environmental Film Festival tomorrow night, actually. We can give you some more details in a minute. And, I mean, where have you taken this film? Um, I was just in Korea. Um, we opened in theatres in Germany, like 70 cities. It, was, it got to tour around there, uh, Spain and all across Canada and the States. And now... I'm in Australia. It's incredible. Like I never realized that people would be this interested in in these stories. But like you say, I think even if you don't live in the mountains, there's some kind of connection people are having with the idea of of stepping away from a, a dense society and and sort of um, reconnecting, I guess, and refreshing with nature. Yeah, and I understand you'd been kind of filming professional skiers and and That's so right. on in, in in your past as well. But this is a very different look at at what it's like to live on the mountains and and why people do that. What's next for you? I mean, will will your next project be based in this kind of similar region, or do you have any ideas for for upcoming projects? Yeah, well, I'm actually we're just finishing a TV series right now on. Uh, Canada's busiest volunteer search and rescue team. Mm. So we kind of embedded ourselves in the team and went on every rescue call for a year and really got to know these people that I don't know how they find the time to volunteer for these kinds of calls. And they're quite harrowing, some of them, and um, dealing with fatalities. So it's been a challenging year to document that. But um, I'm so proud of what we've 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 filmed. And, and when we release it, I think the public will finally understand what, what what they're really giving to the community uh, in terms of, of, of their volunteer time. And, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting to finish that. Yeah. 
Well, that sounds like we might see you back in Australia again. Who knows? <laughs> and um, so tonight you're, um, you'll also be taking questions from the audience doing a Q&A. Uh, uh, sorry, not tonight, tomorrow night um, at the Nova after the screening. So, um, yeah, I'd be interested. I mean, what, what have people been asking you around the world as you travel with the film? Well, it depends kind of where you are. A lot of people want more information of the mother and daughter uh, in the film. And I just found out last week that they want to continue their trip further north. So they're, where they finished in Alaska, they're going to pick up where they left off and, and keep going for three more months further north. And they're like, Grant, do you want to come wow. film this? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm so done. <laughs> I'm not going back out there. Wow, well, that's really full on, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. But, you know, that's where they feel alive, so... That's well, maybe great. they could film it if they've kind of used the cameras and stuff. I, then, <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, Martina, the the mum, uh, or sorry, Tanya, the mum. You know, she's sixty, but she bought my old drone, and she like is getting into flying the drone and stuff. So, wow. who knows what she'll put together from that trip? Well, extraordinary stuff. Well, uh, all the best with the film and thanks. with your next ones. And thanks for coming into Triple R. And last week, a Swinburne academic left that university after 30 of his studies were retracted from scientific journals over allegations of author misconduct. He was also accused of self-plagiarism, which is where an author submits a slightly different version of a study to different publications. In academia, both of these things are serious. Interestingly, uh, much of the reporting around this has also raised the issue of the pressure on academics to publish or perish and um, we're wondering I suppose if this what's happened at Swinburne is a symptom of a much bigger uh, kind of concern affecting academia and Professor Ginny Barber has been looking at this she's director of the Australasian Open Access Strategy Group at QUT which is concerned about the unintended consequences of rewarding academics for quantity rather than quality and uh, it's really great to have you on the phone, Ginny, and I suppose um, for those not familiar with the world of academia, can you sort of describe what this idea of, of publish or perish means and, and why it's a concept that I suppose is being brought up um, in, with more frequency in ac academia? Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so the, the whole issue is that um, for a long time, the main way that academics get rewarded for publication, for, for, for the work that they do is through publication in journals. And this is, this is a very long history, you know, a few hundred years. And um, until quite recently, this was really the only way that academics could get any credit for the work that they did. Um, but, you know, as um, work, research has got more complex, as more people have come into doing research, um, it's pressure to actually get published in particularly highly selective journals has become really very high. And one of the um, issues that's come along at the same time is that research is getting much more complex. And so um, it's become, you know, it becomes increasingly difficult to do good quality research all the time and to be able to get published in these high quality journals. So um, in the past groups that I've worked with, we've, we've, we've been focused on how can we improve the processes so that um, all stages of the, the research process really kind of are improved as much as possible. And so currently peer reviewing, I understand, is kind of the main method of assessing papers prior to them being, publication, uh, being published. How effective is that process and, and I guess in, in what ways does it, um, you know, potentially allow these types of, uh, you know, compromised research to be published? Yeah, so peer review, the best way to think about peer review is it's a sort of 
quality control process. So, you know, like all quality control processes, it's you know has its its um its strengths and its weaknesses. Um, uh, as I said, traditionally for getting published in a journal, it used to be the, the kind of the traditional process is that you have sort of two or three reviewers that look at a paper, then it goes through some sort of uh, editorial decision making, and those are traditionally the way that papers get um, eventually published. Um, of course. You know, any piece of research, particularly more complex ones nowadays, it's arguable that you can't really do all the theory you, you need to pre-publication, particularly if, for example, the data sets associated with that research are not available. And that's becoming increasingly important now because most research that's done now is, is fairly complex. So um, journals in the past have not had uh, strong processes in place to deal with the sort of whole range of research publications, um, but they're increasing, they're getting better at it. Um, but there are still um, particular uh, sort of uh, real checkpoints that need to be put in place. So, for example, journals should have a, a process for checking for plagiarism, the, the, the type of thing that you, you mentioned at the beginning. Um, they should absolutely have a way of checking to make sure, particularly if it's a, uh, a clinical study, say a clinical trial that has been registered before um, the research um, gets going so that you can then check back to see whether what was reported was actually done. And then you also need um, processes to check that the methodology within the research was uh, adequately done. And that relies on experts reviewing the paper properly. And we've, I mean, there's been stories over the years of, of authors tricking publications with false studies and things like this to highlight where processes like that aren't in place. Uh, is, is that sort of, um, I suppose that's one, one way of, of raising issues around this, but is, has that been effective? Are we seeing more publications putting these processes in place, Ginny? Yeah, no. So you're, you're absolutely right. There are some there's some very um, and sometimes quite entertaining studies that have been done to look at this kind of thing. But they do highlight a serious issue. And and I, you know, from the point of view of someone who, who's an editor for a long time, you know, editors were already thinking very hard about these processes. We know that we have to have good processes in place. The issue is actually doing it at scale and doing it sort of systematically. So the types of thing I mentioned earlier, having you know having a process for checking for registration, for example checking for plagiarism, making sure that you have really thorough editorial processes at your journal is, is really important. But that's, that's hard. You know, journals are often run by academics who are not necessarily doing it as part of their main job. Um, whether they have good resources in place is, is, is sometimes you know, difficult if you're a relatively small journal. So there needs to be sort of systematic support across the whole, um, the whole kind of process, really, to make sure that there, there are adequate resources in place. Um, and the other thing, as I mentioned, is that um, particularly as papers get much more complicated, you want to be able to look at the data and the code behind some of these papers. And that's uh, traditionally we've not really been ha able to have the systems in place to do that. Um, nowadays we're getting much better and it's becoming, it's very high up the, the um, kind of agendas of many groups nowadays. And is this particular problem of, um, you know, potentially compromised research being published, is it more pronounced within particular disciplines or in particular institutions, or is it something that kind of affects the kind of academic um, you know, institutions and, and researchers equally? So I would say that it probably came to light most, first off, really within the medical research literature, because, you know, that's, to some extent, that's where you know, it's incredibly important you get the results right. 
So initiatives such as I mentioned, such as uh, report, uh, registration for clinical trials started uh, within clinical medicine, but now there are initiatives uh, for registering across um, the sciences. So for another one is registered reports, and that's been particularly strong in areas like psychology. And there are some, some really great researchers working in that area who have highlighted the need to have um, these processes in place. No institution is immune. I mean, across the world, we see it everywhere. Um, and I think what, what, we, what what's improving is, these, is we're seeing that institutions and funders are beginning to take this increasingly seriously. And indeed, we're even seeing, for example, there's uh, some great initiatives within Australia um, which are highlighting uh, reducibility and checking for errors in, into the whole um, research process more generally. Yeah, so it sounds like there is a lot happening and it's on people's minds. I should remind people that we're speaking with Professor Ginny Barber, who's director of the Australasian Open Access Strategy Group, about, um, I suppose, the, the pressure to publish and the quality control issues for academic publishing as well. And uh, I, I suppose I'm wondering how common it is for things to come to a head, for academics to have their studies retracted. It must be very embarrassing for the universities involved, for the academics, of course, and their careers but also the publication as well. Yeah, so retractions are just really one kind of one part of the whole process of correcting the literature and, and they're actually not a fantastic way of doing it. One of the things that we've argued in the past is to need is the need to be able to recognise and actually reward the need, you know, correcting the literature post-publication. We know that pe that uh, not re research is not perfect; it's a human endeavour. We need to have a way of systematically, um, really cre rewarding corrections the way, when they're done, and also creating a culture that really values the need to look critically at research po research post-publication. You're absolutely right. Um, retractions are very unpopular amongst authors. Even you know if they're done for genuine for reasons that are no fault, they they tend to not uh, be popular. So we'd like you know many groups are thinking about well, how about if we have a culture or processes that allow you to sit to um, correct your research as you go through. You know, for example, we should be rewarding um, groups that scrutinise the literature post-publication that do reproducible, reproducibility studies. You know, when you take a piece of research that's already been done, reanalyse it, those types of studies are incredibly valuable but actually get a very low priority, for example, for funding nowadays. Is there too much pressure on academics to publish? Because obviously, particularly for early career researchers, it can be a matter of having a career or not if you've done your PhD and want to kind of make a name for yourself. And I guess you could also argue that competition does lead to or could lead to better research and um, can kind of, you know, help that process along. But it seems to not necessarily be happening. So is that pressure to kind of be pu published in the highest quality, best renowned journals just too much? It, it, it is it is a real issue, and um, we the, what we'd like to see is, is a, as, as I said, is a culture where um, you don't just reward people for publishing the final um, article, but you perhaps reward people for making their data available as they go along, for reward uh, making their, the code associated with it if, it if it's that type of study, um, not just the final published version. That, that there's an entire spectrum of activities throughout an academic's research life that they do that should all be rewarded. But right now, because it is only the publication, you're absolutely right. That does lead to pressures. But you know, the vast majority of people that are doing research are doing it because they want to answer an important question and because they want to do research well. Um, 
it's the, the issue, I, I think, is that we have a system that doesn't really help them necessarily do that across the research entirety of their research. And I suppose um, another question, and I imagine it's something that you're looking at at the uh, Australasian Open Access Strategy Group, is uh, having access to the research. A lot of research isn't available um, to the public that you, you do need to, to pay sometimes to, to read a study and, and so forth. Is this also in in the future too that we have more you know open access to to research and and that it could be free well we cert that's certainly what we're working towards we're one of the um one of the group one of the uh, uh things that we'd like to see is a national approach to open scholarship in australia um you know which would include everything from open access to the research papers to open to to the data and to the um associated material but it is interesting as research has become more available online it's much more easy to scrutinize and that should be a great thing in fact it is a great thing um and you know i'm sure there clearly was poor research done in the past but it maybe hasn't come to light so much because people they haven't been able to see it so well the fact that it is now available online means that you know research is getting very strong scrutiny and that that has to be good for for um for research overall Thanks so much for chatting with us today. It's um, a really interesting area and I suppose, um, you know, might not affect everybody's lives day to day, but certainly it does go to the heart of us uh, learning more and, and I suppose uh, studying the world around us and making sure that good research actually leads to, to good policy and so forth. So it's been really great to pick your brain. Thanks very much. Thank very great. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.